Greetings, Earthlings. If you're hearing this, you're likely just beginning your journey with us. Welcome. You're about to meet 2019 Jen and Danny, but I am Jen of the future, 2023 Jen, a Jen that's seen some shit. 2019 Jen has no idea the dystopian nightmare that awaits her in just a year's time, but 2023 Jen... Hey, if you're listening, you've been through it too, so you know. I don't need to explain it to you. I do want to explain, though, that the podcast you're about to listen to is going to change quite a bit over the years. So I thought I'd cover that now so that nobody's confused or disappointed as the changes unfold. The biggest change is that at the end of season one, Danny will leave us. Neither of us had any idea what we were doing or getting ourselves into with all of this. The time commitment is a lot. We're still best good buddies. She just wasn't able to continue with the podcast. So starting in season two, things go from kind of a lighthearted, two friends telling each other wild stories vibe to more of an investigative storytelling vibe. The cases covered are more delicate and the research is more in-depth, which brings us to our second big change, the name. Starting with season five and episode 96, So Dead is No Longer. The podcast is now Violent Ends. There's a short announcement episode between seasons four and five that kind of explains the reasons for the change, if you want all of those details. I always tell people that if you prefer one host, investigative true crime podcasts, start at the end and work your way backwards. If you enjoy the ever popular true crime comedy podcast, start at the beginning. Just know that things will slowly but surely change over the years. Either way, whether you're tuning in for the first time or re-listening for the umpteenth time, whether you've started at the beginning or the end or prefer to listen to the episodes in complete random order, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Now, buckle up, buttercups, because you're in for a wild ride. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm ready. You're ready. Let's do this. Okay. Welcome to the very first episode of So Dead, a podcast where we engage in lighthearted chatter about dark subject matter. I'm Jen Carpenter. And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday, everyone. And a very happy Taco Tuesday to you all. We are going to have tacos for lunch. We are going to have tacos for lunch. I'm, I'm very looking excited. forward to it. Yes, I'm excited for that. Can you believe this is episode one? We're doing it. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome. We're sorry. I'm going to apologize only for one thing, and that's the number of times I use the word um in a conversation. Uh, the There I go. Um, the subject matter that we're going to be discussing on So Dead it is very dark, very macabre, true crime, paranormal. So if that's not your jam, that's fine. Um, you might want to turn away now. Which, n- not yeah. that we want to turn people away from our Mm-mm. podcast, but we also don't. We don't want you to hate us. So right. um, it's not to offend anybody. It's not. Um, so, but it's interesting. It's interesting to us, and it's interesting to a lot of people out there. Right. So, it's our history. So we we won't apologize for that. We'll apologize for the ums, for the Michigan accents. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all you get. As we mentioned in our introduction, we live in Michigan, which means a lot of our episodes will feature stories from the men. Um, We could think of no better way to kick off this podcast than by featuring our state's biggest rivalry, Michigan State University 
versus University of Michigan. Go green or go blue? Go green. The two Big Ten colleges are located less than 100 miles apart and have clashed in football, basketball, and hockey. And serial killers. That's right, kids. For our inaugural episode, we will be discussing infamous serial killers from each school with input from a very special guest that you won't want to miss. Now, Danny and I are both MSU fans. Go green. Go 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 green. Go green. Go white. <laughs> go white. I messed that right on up. That's okay. Um, we are both MSU fans, but one of us had to bite the bullet and represent the University of Michigan. Since that is where my favorite serial killer perfected his craft, I volunteered. But make no mistake, I still bleed green. In the spirit of any good sporting event, let's flip a coin to see who goes first. I don't actually have a coin. Do you have a coin? Yeah. Okay, flip it. Wait, we didn't decide who is heads and who is tails. Danny, your heads. I'm Because your first. head is clearly in. I'll just go first. Okay, because here we go. We we're going to have somebody later, and it follows up your story. Okay. So let's, let's just do me first. Mine is Michigan State. Um, I'm going to be covering Donald Eugene Miller. Oh. I'm sure if you are from the Lansing area... From the 60s or 70s, you know this name. Or if you just take an interest in local true crime, because I am not. Absolutely. Thank you very much from the 60s or the 70s. <laughs> but Maybe I the know 80s. Who, <laughs> We're I the know 80s. who Donald Eugene Miller is. And if you know who he is, I'm sorry, because he's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. He is. He grew up in a small neighborhood in East Lansing. Uh, He was essentially the boy next door, polite, clean cut. He was a youth pastor. Um, In 1976, he was attending MSU. He was a member of their marching band. And he was also in love with his classmate, Martha Sue Young. By winter of that year, they were engaged. And by New Year's, Martha has broken the engagement. That's and according, quick. yeah, super quick. Like she was like, yeah, mm, no, just kidding. I changed my mind. <laughs> the ring wasn't big enough. You go that hey, rock. You get a go, bigger girl, diamond. Whatever your reason. <laughs> um, but according to her mother, he started to display odd behavior, and she was having doubts about the relationship anyway. And this just kind of solidified those doubts. Um, they decided to stay friends, and they had already made plans for New Year's Eve. So they kept those plans, and Donald dropped Martha off at 2 a.m. that night at her home, um, and it was on Harrison Avenue. So anybody familiar with campus knows exactly where Harrison Avenue is. Uh, but Martha's mother reported her missing the next day because, you see, she never did come home. So this is a lot of stuff all in one week. So they... Got engaged. She broke off the engagement. Yep. She kept the New Year's Eve plans, and then she disappeared. Yes. She never came home. Yes. Okay. He became Donald Eugene Miller, became a suspect immediately. Um, He was never arrested, though, because they didn't really have any evidence. But he had a lack of emotion. He changed his story multiple times. Uh, he even failed two lie detector tests, oh. but that's not really 
It's not reliable. Yeah, it's they not can't reliable. Use so a lie detector alone. Though they kind of had it in their head that he's our dude, they couldn't do anything. Right. Nothing would support it. Right. Um, in October of seventy-seven, so this would have been ten months after Martha went missing. Um, all of her belongings were found near Potter Lake in Bath, Michigan. Which and that's just kind of a little yeah, further than East Lansing, right? Yeah, it's like the next town over. Okay. Um, some hunters found her clothes that were all laid out, complete with her underwear underneath. Like she was laying there and then just kind of disappeared. That so like is super so creepy. Up. To me, that I'm just side noting here. If something like that is found, that just screams like psychopath, right? Serial killer leaving his trail. He's like tormenting the investigators. And with, they knew it, it's not like it was just a random outfit. Like some some chick was running through the woods naked, left her clothes <laughs> laying right. on the ground. Her ID was found with the clothes, so right. they knew exactly who those clothes belonged to. That's that's terrifying. It's terrifying. So, and you know, I mean, we hear these stories nowadays of fucked up people and it's scary but in the 70s these things didn't happen and certainly not any slancing no not at all so you know i mean i think the community was definitely shaken um but we're gonna fast forward to june 1978 so this is I, can, I am so bad at math, you guys. So, About a little over six months after right. the, the clothes have been found. So, she's been missing right. now for about a year and a half. A year and a half, yep. Her she clothes have been found about six Ten months. or so months ago. Why yep. can't I do math today? It's because I'm hungry and I need tacos. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we're looking at about a year and a half after Martha went missing. Um, 27 year old Marita. Choquette. I don't want to say that wrong. I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, she went missing after being dropped off at her apartment in Grand Lodge. Her friend dropped her off, but never actually made it home. And Grand Lodge is another just small community right yeah. outside Lansing. This one's to the west. So. It's more west. Uh, like you have to skip through Lansing and then you're in Grand Lodge right. from so East Lansing. So we've got Lansing kind of right in the middle, East Lansing and Bath over to the east and right. Grand like Lodge Like maybe a good 20-minute drive. Mm-hmm. Um, However, her body was found two weeks later by a farmer in Okemos, which Okemos is definitely more east. And south. South? We're just confusing you guys. If you're from the area, you know. You know exactly where it if is. If you're not, it's all I know, within it's all, pull this up a probably. Map. You'll see it. <laughs> pull up a map. Um, it's all within probably about a 30 or so mile radius. Yes. Um, Marita had been stabbed 17 times. Oh, my God. I know. That is like, that's some fucking rage. You had right anger, there. yeah. Like she must have really pissed you off, right? Um, her arms were severed. What the fuck? But her body was like partially concealed because somebody had covered her with big concrete bricks. With bricks, so she didn't go anywhere, right? Yeah, with her no like, arms, with and her, her seventeen no arms. stab wounds. Yeah, like okay. you stay here. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Um, so the two weeks after she went missing, when her body was found, that same day, 21-year-old Wendy Bush went missing, and that was from MSU campus near Case Hall. So if you're familiar with campus, you know where Case Hall is. So the same day. So we've got... Same day. Her body's found, and now somebody's missing. So we've got a missing woman, 
a body that's just been found after being missing for two weeks, and now, boom, we've got another, another missing, missing woman. Yeah. And again, this stuff did not happen in this town. No, it didn't. It you didn't, know. and it doesn't. No. Except it's for still... the time that it did. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Put that all together. You guys know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so Wendy was last seen walking on campus with a tall white man. Those tall white men. Stay away from them, ladies. Yeah. Stay away from them. They're tall and they're white. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find a lot of them in East Lansing. <laughs> they're there. Um, around two months later, after Wendy went missing, on August 14th, so this is still 1978, um, a Lansing school teacher, Christine Stewart, also went missing. She, too, was last seen walking, but she was coming from an auto repair shop to her house, which happened to also be in the same neighborhood where Donald Eugene Miller oh, lived. shit. So he's a suspect already yeah. in the original disappearance. Of now, Martha. all of these other women are disappearing, and they can't find anything to bring him in on? Nothing. Nothing. And But I got to tell you, and this is not me victim blaming at all, but if my neighbor is suspected of any kind of killing... My house is going up for sale, and I'm getting the fuck out of that neighborhood. Well, she probably didn't know. I would yeah, imagine she might that the police, the police going to think that him. your neighbor's really a killer. Right, and, and I'm, I'm sure that the police suspected him, but maybe weren't advertising it. But they should right. have been following him or something. Jesus. That's the one thing that gets me. You've got a suspect, and then all these other people come up missing that, according to reports, look like Martha. Yes. These people all looked very similar yes. in appearance. There's got to, you know, like, you got to go, huh, is there a connection here? But then again, these things didn't happen then, so maybe they didn't have those tools to make those connections. They had the fucking tools. They just didn't want to use them. I'm just trying to find the loophole. I know. So two days after that, after Christine Stewart went missing, we had two kids. We're not going to say their names because they were minors at the time. Fair. Um... One was a 14-year-old girl. One was a 13-year-old boy, brother and sister. They were home alone on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, knock on the door. Little The girl answers the knock. It's a young guy at the door. He's asking for pencil and paper so he can write down a phone number. Um, back then, there were no cell phones, so, you know, you have to think. Right. You know. But what a weird thing to ask. Super weird. Almost, can I use your bathroom would have made more sense, but can I right. borrow a pencil? Get right. the fuck out of here, you weird tall white guy. <laughs> Those tall white guys. God damn it. So, you know, she's like, obliged. Yeah, of course. Obliged. <laughs> Oblige. I yeah. oblige. I mean, take my pencil. <laughs> take my pencil. Here's my paper. You know, people were kind back then. That's it, true. You weren't suspicious. We're always suspicious now. You know, you see For somebody in. For fucking reason. Because of Donald's. The Donald's out The Donald's ruined it for us. God damn it, Donald. But yeah, I mean, she wasn't suspicious. We probably weren't teaching our children to not answer the door. I'm a grown, I'm a grown woman. And if I'm home by myself, I do not answer knock at my door. I'm like, me neither. But that's usually because I'm not fully clothed. You know, that's a good reason. Yeah. I got to start keeping some pants by the door. I'm suspicious of these fuckers. True. Same. There's no reason you should be knocking on my door. Give me a call. Text me. Right. I like that better. Don't come to my house. Right. With no. With no I don't no want to talk to you. 
ma'am or sir. Right. I don't care how many pencils you need. You are not getting them. <laughs> and I don't have paper for Fine. you either. Um, anyway, so she let, I don't know if she lets him in, but she goes back to get, you know, the house is unsecure at this point. She goes back to get the paper and pencil and he pushes his way through, takes her back to the bedroom and sexually assaults her and is attacking her. Essentially, he's strangling her. God damn it. 14 years old. Fuck this guy, man. So her brother, who is also home, hears the commotion, goes in. Go, brother. Comes to her aid, starts rescuing her. But now the attacker is focusing on him. Fuck. So she gets away, runs out into the street, and catches the attention of a mother and her child who are nearby. They run to her aid. There's also an Oldsmobile worker from one of the local plants and a fire chief out there. What are the fucking chances? What are the odds? You find a mom to save you Mm -hmm. and a fire chief and a factory worker to go after this fucking guy that is now attacking your little brother. Right. And they don't catch him, but they do follow him in his brown Oldsmobile Cutlass, which... If you lived in the Lansing area, everybody had an Oldsmobile. Oldsmobile cutlass. <laughs> right. So, so they actually got his plate, and they were God. able to report it to the police. Um, they went in. The young boy was unconscious. Mm. He had been strangled. No. However, both him and his sister have survived. Fuck yeah. They are thriving. That's wonderful. And living in our community. They are... From what we hear, amazing people in our society. Um, Can you even... So this is a serial killer. He's murdered multiple women. He is at this point just kind of berserking. You know, at first there was a method to it, it sounds like. You know, he killed his fiance, his ex-fiance, because he was angry. He killed a couple women over the next couple years because they looked like her. And then he just goes crazy um, right. and attacks children in their home, which what the fuck? But That's... they they brought they brought down teenagers. A thirteen year old right. boy and a fourteen year old girl brought down brought a fucking down. serial killer. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. That's probably the most interesting part to me about this is every all the women that went missing kind of fit the same mo, but then he kind of veered. He went completely different. These people were at their home. They were in their safe place. They yeah. were children. Which thank fucking God that that was it, that that was the last one. Because right. if he had escalated to that level, that's it. Yeah. I mean, the the whole city was Absolutely. in jeopardy. Yeah. I mean, women were not safe. Absolutely and not. And children and, at this And children. Point. Yeah. So that same day, he was arrested. He was convicted of rape and attempted murder. And for the attacks on the children, he was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison. Not long enough. No. Now, Michigan is not a death penalty state. It never has been. But for people like Donald Eugene Miller, we should make exceptions. Absolutely. (laughs) Agreed. Save us some money. Um, In a plea deal, he agreed to, with the agreement of the victims, the other victims' families, he pled guilty to second-degree murder, for the deaths of Martha Sue Young and Christine Stewart. In exchange, he led investigators to the bodies of Martha, Christine, and Wendy, who they were the ones that hadn't been found yet. 
Mind you, he was not charged for Wendy or Marita. And and I think the thought there obviously was, you know, we've got him. He's not getting out, and these families deserve closure, they, which right, they absolutely they need to did. lay their children to rest, for sure. Um, Martha was found in, is it Pregouris Park in Bath? I don't have I any don't idea how to I don't know how to pronounce that. that. It's in Bath Township. She was found there. Um, he told police he strangled her because she didn't love him anymore. Talk about the r- most ridiculous temper tantrum. What a baby. Yep. Fuck you, Donald Miller. <laughs> Donald Eugene Miller. <laughs> and then Christine Stewart, who he said he killed because he saw her walking down the street and thought it was Martha. A year and a half after he'd already killed Martha. Yeah. So how fucked up in the head was he that he thought that she was just kept coming back to life? I mean, what? Right. Like, talk about I self-doubt. If I guess he, I didn't do it right. Right. I wonder if he went and checked on the body ever just to make sure it was still there, you know, if he was seeing her alive everywhere. Oh, Creepy fuck. Right? Oh, you wonder that if they go back to visit. Yeah. I would think. Because some of them do. I would and they think, go to the funerals. Yeah. And, With him especially, I know. would think that being that she was his primary obsession and he kept thinking he was finding her alive, I would think that he went back at least a couple times. Right. I don't, I don't know. You, yeah. But Christine was found in a drainage ditch by DeWitt. Um, she'd been run over and strangled. Oh, my God. So... That's makes me sad. Um, and then Wendy was found in a wooded area near St. Joe Highway and Broadbent in Delta Township, which coincidentally is now where our Savior Lutheran now stands. <laughs> That's a, a church and a school, right? Yeah. Double yep. whammy. <laughs> and um, he and Wendy were acquaintances. They had been canoeing together before, oh. which... From a lot of stories that I've read, most serial killers don't really know their victims, right? I I think that's true in a lot of cases. I mean, maybe they cross paths, right? But it almost sounds like with him, murder wasn't the plan. No. I you think know, he wanted... it, it was the rejection. Yeah. It was yeah. the... Uh, I'm killing her because she doesn't love me. I'm killing her because she doesn't want a second date. I'm killing her because she looks like the first one I killed. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until that last one that it seems like he really fucking really lost up. it. Yeah, like he was just out to get anybody. Um, he was also acquaintances with Marita, Same. and he worked with her at the MSU library. He took her to breakfast one day and killed her afterwards. Oh, She so, must have rejected him also. Right. Uh, he How her. about just fucking take no for an answer? Right? Donald I think, Eugene I mean, we're Miller. still teaching people that. Oh, my God. No means no. No means no, people. Uh, he, she's the one who had her hands or her arms oh, cut right. off. God. And he cut her hands off because he couldn't get his handcuffs off of her. He lost the fucking handcuff key. So he kidnapped her, murdered her, and then lost the key to his fucking handcuffs. How about buy some new handcuffs? Right. Get a chopper her, her arms off? Right. Her just, arms? just leave them. Yeah. Just leave her. Leave her. Like, leave the hands Call it a alone. loss. God. <laughs> um, 
So in conclusion, he was sentenced to 30 to 50 years for the attacks on the children, and then 10 to 15 years for killing Martha and Christine. 10 to 15 years. And as part of the plea deal, he was not charged for Marita or Wendy. And his sentence, the both of them, were to run concurrently. So... Really, at the same time, it yeah, didn't add it just anything. Didn't add any time. So killing four women added nothing, nothing to his jail time. Right. Fuck and he that. was. It was 1989. Um, when he was 35 and up for parole. 35. So he was 23 when he was convicted, or when he started, when he first killed Martha. So what? That made him maybe 25, 26 when he was convicted. Right. 35 when he was up for parole, he was denied. Thank God. But within eight years, he went six more times in front of the parole board, denied each time. So this is just to to drive that point home. We're talking about a local man. So if you're local to the Lansing area, this is a man that admitted to murdering mm-hmm. four women, tried to murder two children, and at 35 years old, after serving less than 10 years, mm-hmm. he's up, for, up parole. for parole. Right. I mean, talk about a danger to society, to right. our society, to Can our community. Can you imagine if he'd been let out? No. There'd be some sort of lineage cut off. Right. You know? I right. mean, oh. Um, but... He was a model prisoner. <laughs> so it was really just a matter of time before they were going to actually grant him I parole. love that. It doesn't matter what you did to get here. If you behave well but once you're, you're here, <laughs> then when you know we're watching, then maybe we'll let you out early. Right. And just you hope, can't be hope you don't do out it again. In the world, hope you don't chop any more fucking hands off. I okay. know. That makes me sick. <laughs> My God. Um, but there was an investigator who was researching all of his records and found that in 1994, there was an infraction on his file. He had been in possession of a shoelace with barrel buttons on the ends. I don't, I'm trying to picture what that looks like. So remember those jackets you would have and they had like a drawstring drawstring and they had those little things at the ends that looked like barrels, like the root beer candy. Yes, I got it. And you could push the button down and slide them up and down. And if you were fidgety like me, you would just do that until you broke the button. Thousands of times on my starter jacket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But they found that infraction. It was said to be a weapon or a strangulation device oh, in prison. Right. So it actually added another 20 to 40 years what onto his sentence. What kind of bullshit? Mm-hmm. So killing four women adds nothing. Having a jacket string that you maybe could have strangled someone with adds 20 years. Yep. I know. Okay. So silly. It's fine. But that sure. was in 94. 94. Those 20 years have passed. So, he's now up for parole in 2016. 2016. Two years ago. Three Three years ago. Three years ago, really. Um, He was denied. Thank goodness. His next next time he's up for parole is in 2021. 2021. How old will he be in 2021? Uh, Can you do that math? Because I sure as shit cannot. 66? 66. Mm -hmm. I mean... Because the maximum sentence or the maximum discharge date, which I would assume that means the maximum. They have to let him go. If he's still alive, they have to let him go. Mm -hmm. 
is going to be March 24th and... 2031. 2031? Yep. So he'll be 76. See, now 76, I'm not too afraid of a 76-year-old man. But a 66-year-old man? I um, I don't want that fucker back out in our community. I don't know. If you've got a knife in your 70s... My dad is in his 70s, and he's pretty cool and active dude. So I'm scared of anybody who's a killer. Vintage is in. If anybody's Vintage got one of those jackets from the 80s... With the little drawstrings with the barrels on the end. Send them Mail to one. We'll, we'll find Donald Eugene Miller's address in prison. Uh, we will <laughs> pay for your postage. Send it to him, okay? So that we can get him locked up for another 20 years and we don't have to worry about that piece <laughs> of shit coming back into our community. Because that is, this is his home. This is where he'll come back to. Fuck that guy. Um. I have a side note on this. So my parents in the 70s were looking at building a house. Okay. And they decided to not move forward because the contractor had pulled out because his wife, Christine Stewart, had been killed by oh Donald my God. Eugene Miller at the time. Ugh. So, you know, I mean, if you're part of this community, whether big or small, you probably have a connection to him or one of his victims, which is incredibly sad. It is. So sad. So to the families of the victims, I certainly hope that you don't listen to murder podcasts. If you do, we're so fucking sorry. We don't mean to sound We're crass. not light about what we're, happened to them or even weighs, the surviving victims. I mean, it's really... Absolutely. All of this always weighs very heavily on us, but yeah. it, it's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. They're pieces of shit. Not pieces the victims. Of the shit. The killers. So that's what you've got for Michigan State. Yep. Go green. Go white and go fuck yourself, Donald Eugene Miller. You got that. And representing the University of Michigan in today's competition is none other than the man, the myth, the legend, H.H. Holmes. The original. The original. H.H. Holmes was modern America's first serial killer and murdered somewhere between 9 and 200 people in the late 1800s. I mean, that's such a big gap. That's a huge gap. (laughs) We'll talk about that a little bit later and why. (laughs) Uh, Nine. How many tacos do you want? No, between 9 and 200. (laughs) Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. I'll be fine. Now, I will just tell you guys right now, I am absolutely fascinated by H.H. Holmes. He is my favorite serial killer, and I could talk about him for hours. We're going to cut fact, that back a little? Can, can we? No, can we do that? Can we just, all of this that we've been working on all of these months, can we just scrap it? And, and just do a podcast on H.H. Holmes? Just about H.H. Holmes, every no. episode. Got it. He'll probably find a way into everyone, though. Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right, so I'm just going to do a very brief overview of who H.H. Holmes was and why I'm obsessed with him, because our main focus today is all of the ways that he's connected to Michigan, uh, namely the University of Michigan, and there actually are quite a few. Um, And when I say a brief overview, I mean a really long one that I made as brief as I possibly could. (laughs) Hours, hours. Hours and hours. So... 
A.J. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire on May 16, 1861. His parents were very strict, very religious. His father was abusive. He was weirdly obsessed with his mother, etc., etc. Of course. We've heard that all before, uh-huh. right? Uh, he liked to torture and dissect animals as a child. Of course he did. Of course he did. <laughs> I mean, really, all the signs were there, but in the right. 1800s, they just didn't really know what to they look for. They were like, for. what's a serial killer? Well, he has an interest in science, doesn't he? <laughs> uh He worked under the tutelage of the town doctor and assisted with dozens of autopsies as a young boy. Of course he did. And it should be mentioned that it is believed that he may have murdered his only childhood friend by pushing him out of a treehouse while they were playing outside one day. And that he may have drowned two of his own cousins as a teenager. Of course he did. (laughs) Of course he did. All normal childhood milestones that we've all experienced. Yeah, like your first killing. Right. Your first drowning. So Mudgett got married when he was 17 years old to a woman by the name of Clara Lovering. Two years later, in 1880, Clara gave birth to their first and only child, a boy that they named Robert. Mudgett moved across the country in 1882, abandoned his little family, earned a degree in medicine in 1884. And in 1886, he moved to Chicago and changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes, as he is more commonly known. That same year, he married a woman by the name of Myrta Belknap, with whom he had a daughter named Lucy. His marriage to Myrta was never legal, on account of him already being married, but that's okay, because he abandoned her as well. In 1887, when he was just 26 years old. So all of this is before his 26th birthday. I mean, he did more before my first marriage. Busy fucking guy. I I will say, though, I mean, it was the 1800s. Life expectancies were low. You had to get it done. Yep. Had to get it done back then. So 1887, he's 26. He bought a plot of land across the street from the pharmacy where he worked and began construction on what is known around the world today as the Murder Castle, where he is believed to have killed dozens, if not hundreds, of people during Chicago's World Fair of 1893. While he was widely considered a jack-of-all-trades, Holmes was best known for running three major rackets with one common goal, money. He ran a grave robbing operation in which he would steal fresh bodies from their graves, (laughs) then clean them up and sell them to doctors and medical schools as cadavers. He ran an insurance scam. That's fun, right? So fun. He ran an insurance scam in which he would take out life insurance policies on acquaintances, then help them fake their deaths and present stolen cadavers to collect the insurance money. Eventually, he started cutting out the middleman and just actually killing Killing those friends that he had taken out the policies on and collecting the insurance. And they didn't do autopsies back then, so there was, like, no embalming. So it was easy to dig up a grave and sell the body. Right. He would disfigure them just enough that you couldn't tell what you were looking at, and and he would make money off of it. Um, He also preyed on the scores of young, naive girls that were flocking to the big city for Chicago's World Fair. Uh, They were alone. They were vulnerable. And it took months for anyone to ever figure out they were missing, if they ever figured it out at all. He would lure these girls to his... These girls? We (laughs) like that. Girls. 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 (laughs) Okay. He would lure the girls to his hotel, seduce them, and then get them to sign over their fortunes to him before he killed them. If they didn't come from money... 
That was okay, too. He had other uses for pretty young girls with no families. Holmes was said to be extremely intelligent, strikingly handsome, and irresistibly charming. Because of course he was. Of course he was. He gave all the ladies <laughs> the vapors. <laughs> all the girls? He gave all the girls the vapors. Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Which was how he flew under the radar for so long. But his crowning achievement was his murder castle, a three-story monstrosity of a building that occupied an entire city block. It was a mixed-use building with offices and shops on the first floor, apartments on the second floor, and a hotel on the third floor. And in the middle? Pure fucking terror. The murder castle was full of secret rooms, soundproof vaults, gas chambers, peepholes, incinerators, trapdoors, and mazes. What the fuck? Right? I told you he was smart. The building sure. was... <laughs> <laughs> the building was outfitted with an intricate system of chutes that allowed bodies to be dropped from their third floor rooms straight to the basement where vats of acid, quicklime pits, and crematoriums awaited. Nope. Nope. This is easily <laughs> the thing that fascinates me the most about A.J. Holmes. Uh, out in plain sight, disguised as an upscale hotel, he built a literal castle for the sole purpose of luring, capturing, torturing, killing, and disposing of victims just for fun, all in one building. One stop shop. That's so the businesses that ran on the first level. Yes. Do we know if they were his businesses or were they at least a portion of them were? He ran a pharmacy. Okay. Um and I believe he rented out some of the space, but there were I mean it was a huge building, right. so there were several. That's insane. So unsuspecting. I know. It's it's crazy. Uh but by eighteen ninety four, Holmes's crimes were catching up to him and he fled Chicago. He was captured in Boston on November 17, 1894. He was convicted for the murder of his best friend, Benjamin Peitzel, and his entire fucking family in Stop. 1895, including his little children, during an insurance scam gone awry. And then on May 7, 1896, he was sent to the gallows at Moyamensing Prison in Philadelphia. He was 34 years old. 34. 34. 34. That's younger than me now. That's younger than both of us now. I I can't even organize my basement. <laughs> I sure as shit couldn't kill 200 people. Right? In um, that time frame. And build I mean, a, not that I couldn't. <clears throat> no, I couldn't. Build a murder castle? Build a murder castle? Get married multiple now, times? the murder castle still stands. No. no it does not. It does not. It's been torn down. Okay. Well, We'll get there. We'll all right, get there. All right. I'm jumping ahead. So you are. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so <laughs> drink up. <laughs> so what does any of that have to do with the University of Michigan? Only everything. When Holmes left New Hampshire in 1882, it was to attend medical school at U of M. The University of Michigan had a reputation as one of the best medical schools in the country. It was there that Holmes learned the art of dissection, which he later used to torture countless victims in his murder castle. Mm -mm. It was there that he honed the craft of grave robbing. He and his classmates would dig up fresh graves and then sell the bodies to the university. It was there that he and classmate Robert Leacock first began running, running insurance scams together, taking out bogus life insurance policies, then stealing cadavers from the university to cash in the policies. So, I mean, if you think about it, just one body could have been worth so much to him. He digs right. it up. He sells it to the college as a cadaver. Then he goes in and steals the cadaver and uses it to cash in an insurance policy. 
That's quite a, a that's like double double the money. Double double money no what was that game show? No whammies. Double money, no whammies, what was double that? whammies. I think it was called <laughs> whammies? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. I know about, what you're right? talking about. Okay. Big whammy. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I take grass. Um So it was from the University of Michigan that Holmes got his medical degree. His photo still hangs in a hallway at the U of M Medical Center today. Are you serious? Yes, along with the rest of his graduating class. So it's one big picture and they're all in it. So they, I mean, I guess they could cut him out. Um, But why that class? All of them. They've got a picture from every year. Every year. Oh, okay. Yep. So they they could take that one down. Um, But I, I imagine it draws attention. From sure. weirdos like us. <laughs> <laughs> Who you call um, weird? Uh, us. We are weird. We're Fair. Weird. We are weird. So when Holmes first moved to Chicago, he worked for a doctor, Elizabeth Holton, at her drugstore, which he would eventually purchase from her. That drugstore was just across the street from where he built his murder castle. Okay. And Dr. Holton was a fellow University of Michigan alum as well. It's unclear whether she and Holmes knew each other during their college days, but the prevailing theory is that they probably had mutual friends. Mm -hmm. So when he said he was moving Chicago, people were like, hey, look up my friend Lizzie. Uh, And that was how he found her and got a job so quickly once he arrived in Chicago. So back to those numbers. There have been nine confirmed kills attributed to H.H. Holmes. He confessed to 27 from death row, but some believe that he may have killed up to 200. So (laughs) somewhere between nine and 200. As bad as record keeping was during the 1800s and as many people passed through Chicago and passed the murder castle during the World's Fair without leaving any sort of paper trail, it's just it's impossible to know for sure how many people he killed. But given that the man built a motherfucking murder Murder castle, castle? I would have to guess that it was more than Mm -hmm. nine. He wasn't just doing this part time. This was his, this was his his passion project. Yeah. Oh, So while rumors of his first murder date back to his childhood, Holmes's first confessed murder was that of his U of M college friend, Robert Leacock. Stop. I'm telling you, we're not even done. We're We're not not even even close. No. So the men were planning their greatest insurance scam yet. They'd taken out $40,000 policies on one another and were going to fake both of their deaths. (laughs) Because that was just the thing to do back then. Instead, Holmes killed Leacock in his murder castle, packed his body in a trunk, then set off to northern Michigan to make Leacock's death look like an accident involving a a lumber camp for some reason. Stop. I don't. It was a very strange story because it, in in his own words, um, because he did pen a book uh, of confessions before he was put to Mm -hmm. death, um, he, he went back and forth between it being what he did with Robert Leacock's body and what he did with a complete stranger's body trying to fake his own death to get the mm-hmm. insurance money. So it was very convoluted and hard to put together. Um, so disclaimer, I may I may not have it exactly right, but right. that's only because H.H. Holmes was a pathological liar. Thanks, Herman. He probably killed so many people he couldn't keep them straight. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what Holmes did not properly consider was the reality of traveling by train for hundreds of miles in the middle of summer with a rotting corpse in a trunk. Gross. Gross. Right. He had tremendous difficulty on his journey and wound up having to stop off in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is uh, west 
of Lansing, uh, kind minutes. of right between here and Chicago, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Grand Rapids, he suffered all sorts of misfortunes that I really do not care to talk about because rotting corpses are fucking disgusting. And Just a I little. don't want to talk about them. <laughs> no, finally, no. <laughs> nope, big nope. <laughs> he finally reached his destination in northern Michigan and collected his $40,000. Uh, Jesus, and that was how much back then? $10 billion. I don't know. <laughs> right. I have no a idea. Ton. A, a ton. A lot. Um, so, again, that story is very confusing because he admits to killing Dr. Leacock, who was his friend and his co-conspirator in the insurance scams, mm-hmm. when records show that Dr. Leacock actually did not die until years later. Oh, so that God. entire right. story could be made up. But then he also tells the same story as how he faked his own death to cash in that policy, and it was just a random cadaver that he was carting around Grand Rapids with him. Either way, H.H. Holmes in Grand Rapids carting around a nasty rotting corpse in the middle of the summer trying not to get caught by the Secret Service. So fucking gross. So. All right. So even though he was an East Coast boy and a Chicago killer, H.H. Holmes definitely had his roots in Michigan. Mm -hmm. More specifically, at the University of Michigan. But wait, there is more. A big part of the reason that they say the murder castle was so successful and able to fly under the radar for so long is that Holmes sectioned off the work. He did as much of it himself as he could, but what he couldn't, he was constantly hiring and firing different contractors to do. Uh, So we would only have one person or one company complete a very specific section. You do these four rooms, and then you would hire someone else to do the duct work and someone else to do the electricity. Um, So everyone only kind of had little pieces of the puzzle. Nobody else got to see the whole picture, and so no one knew what he was doing. Except for one man, uh, Holmes's henchman, a man by the name of Patrick Quinlan, who was from Portland, Michigan, which bum, is bum, bum. plot twist just outside <laughs> of Lansing, um, just mm-hmm. about twenty-five miles northwest of the city of Lansing, uh, is where Pat. Patrick Quinlan was from. He moved to Chicago during the time of the World's Fair looking for work, and he found it with Holmes. (laughs) He was the janitor and caretaker of the macabre establishment, uh, and he was the only person besides Holmes who knew what it really was. Now, to hear Pat Quinlan tell it, he had no idea what Holmes was doing in this castle. He just swept the floors, emptied the garbage bins, and went about his janitory business You know, emptied the garbage bins full of ears and eyeballs. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, So, of course, he noticed all the women that were coming to the castle and never leaving the castle. But he was afraid to ask questions because he was afraid of his much smaller boss. Patrick Quinlan was a big guy. H.H. Holmes was not. Hmm. Um, And so why was he afraid of him? Well, because he had witnessed firsthand Holmes's wickedness, so he knew what type of person he was, obviously. And because a condi- as a condition of Quinlan's employment at the murder castle, he had been required to take out a hefty life insurance policy on <laughs> himself and make Holmes the sole beneficiary. Of course. Of course Who he did. Who the fuck were these people selling insurance? <laughs> like, you could just take right. insurance. <laughs> I want to make my boss, my beneficiary. Sure, I've got a wife and kids, but if I die tomorrow, I'll leave it all to my boss. Yeah, it doesn't read suspect at all. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And what kind of employer would make that requirement 
Um, Isn't that a red H. flag? H.H. Holmes. Right. Did yeah. they even have flags in the 1800s? I feel like no. Not red ones. If they did, uh, Holmes used them to torture. Murder somebody. Mur- he, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it, was, it was a one. I don't know where I was going with that one, but here we are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got so, you. According to historians, however, Pat Quinlan helped Holmes clean up his crime scenes, dispose of bodies, and was even an active participant in some of Holmes' crimes. As one story goes, Pat was having an affair with a young chambermaid who found herself pregnant. This was a problem because Pat Quinlan was already married with a child. Of course he was. Right. So he pleaded with Holmes to help him, and Holmes did so by disposing of both the pregnant chambermaid and her sister at Quinlan's request. Of course he did. In 1893, when the walls were finally starting to close in on homes, there was a massive fire at the murder castle. It did not destroy the building, but it did destroy quite a bit of evidence. Arson was suspected, and Pat Quinlan was the suspected arsonist. And when Holmes was finally arrested, Quinlan was arrested right along with him. Pat Quinlan was subsequently released due to a lack of evidence and went back to the murder castle where he continued to live with his wife and daughter during Holmes's trial. Stop. He, he didn't... He brought his wife and his daughter into the burned-out murder castle that he killed his mistress in? Like, what the fuck? Let's just live here with eyeballs and ears in the trash can. You're, I'm going to get you next Christmas. You're getting a necklace with just eyeballs, eyeballs and, and ears. Eyeballs and ears? Mm, I can't eyeballs wait. Eyeballs and ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, After Holmes was hanged, Quinlan moved back to Portland, Michigan with his family, hoping to get away from it all. And that was where his biggest mistake was. Uh Uh-oh. Unlike Chicago, where the public and the press quickly moved on to the next big scandal after Holmes was put to death, the murder castle and their connection to it was all the small town of Portland could talk about. So in Chicago, it's not big news anymore in Portland it's the only news. Right, small um, town gossip. Right. Things like that didn't happen in small farming towns like Portland. So Pat Quinlan was the talk of the town for years. Once back home, memories of his time in Chicago haunted Quinlan so violently that it was said he did not sleep for 19 years. Stop. He would. <laughs> I, I haven't slept in 19 years. How old's my oldest son? Almost 20. I have not slept in 20 years. <laughs> He would wake up in the night screaming and covered in sweat. He would have night terrors and nightmares and was convinced he was being haunted by the ghosts of Holmes and the women that he killed right under Pat Quinlan's nose. On March 7th, 1914, Pat Quinlan scribbled a note on a piece of paper and downed a bottle of strychnine, ending his torment once and for all. On the note, he simply wrote, I couldn't sleep. So that's the story of H.H. Holmes and all the ways he's connected to Michigan. There's so much more that we could talk about. Like the so theory, much more. <laughs> the theory that he faked his death and actually escaped prison. The theory that he might have also been Jack the Ripper. Then there's the Holmes curse, which has to do with all of the people connected to the case and the trial that died or disappeared in strange ways after Holmes was hanged. And like I said at the start of this, we could talk about Holmes for hours and hours and hours. But alas, we've got other creepy fish to fry. Um, (laughs) I do want to end with this, though. While he was awaiting his death sentence, Holmes was once asked, basically, what the fuck, dude? Uh, And this was his answer. (laughs) That's exactly what they asked him. I think so. What in the actual fuck, man? Right. Uh, What he said was, 
I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me ever since. That's so creepy. So creepy, dude. So creepy. Okay, so what's worse? The religious boy next door who goes around killing women that look like his ex-girlfriend who rejected him? Or the evil personified disguised as a handsome doctor i don't know i mean i'm i i kind of got a vote here on who i think the winner is you've got a vote well (laughs) i'm undecided but i think i know someone that can help us decide please welcome to the so dead lair a very special guest he is the author of the book bloodstains he was the star of the history channel's american ripper and he just happens to be the great great grandson of the one and only H.H. Holmes, Mr. Jeff Mudgett. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, and Danny, it's a pleasure, and I've been looking forward to coming on your show for uh, quite a while now. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Um, First, we just want to make sure we've got this right. You are related to Holmes straight down the paternal line of your family tree, correct? He's my grandfather's grandfather. Okay, and your great-great-grandmother was Clara Mudgett, which is Holmes's first and really only legal wife, correct? That's that's correct. Awesome. Okay. You guys have been doing your homework. Absolutely. We, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us about when and how you found out that you were related to one of the most evil men in American history? That was at a family dinner. I was about 40 years old. And to tell you the truth, I, I, I'd known all my life that I was different. I had certain idiosyncrasies or character flaws, you might call them. I'd never committed any crimes or actually contemplated murder. That's good. That's always good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But my, but my idea about things and how I contemplated handling them was far different than the the people I'd, I'd known in my life. So when my grandfather told us, around the the dining table that he had a secret to tell (laughs) and then informed us that we were the direct looking at me, my brother and my father, that we were the direct descendants of perhaps America's most evil diabolical criminal, an evil genius, you know, that, that ranked up there with Frankenstein. Oh my gosh. Uh, it, It, it shook it shook the family to its core. Most of my family pretty much tried to blow it off. I was the one it stuck with. And I think that was probably my grandfather's intent. And uh, as you guys know, it went on mm-hmm. to be, I set aside my career in law. I took up, right. I took up researching who he actually was because most of what you read about Holmes is legend and lore and outright lies. Right. And I decided to write a book. And then, like you, like you mentioned at the highlight of the show, I, I was given a, an opportunity with History Channel to uh, put my theories out there for the world. So I think that I would have very much reacted the way you did. I mean, for a lot of people, finding out that you're related to someone like that uh, – would be maybe horrifying, 
but I would be obsessed. That's that's I think every true crime junkie's dream to find out that you've got <laughs> right. some strange connection to right. this person that is so prolific in history. Not in a good way, of course, but still, I mean, you say the name H.H. H. Holmes and everybody knows who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think you probably would have handled it like like I did mentally. I I looked at it as it wasn't a choice I had. It wasn't something someone could blame me for, but it was something that possibly could have been furthered to maybe prevent another one like him in the future. Absolutely. So, and that's what I tried to explain to my family. M- many of my family refused to talk to me for two or three years when they found out I was writing the book. Oh no! Really? Kind yeah, of a yeah. kind of that mentality of um, you know we don't speak about unpleasant things type of thing. Oh yeah, and then they they wanted to leave it, you know, a secret. Yes. And uh, perhaps foremost among those was my grandmother, who'd never been told by my grandfather <gasps> where he had come from, and <laughs> and back then she probably wouldn't have married him. Oh my! Oh. Well, I, and I bet she was just very curious as to what, as a woman, what what other secrets is her husband hiding? <laughs> right. You, uh, you know, it's uh, my grandfather was a, as I wrote write about in Bloodstains. He's a he was a very stoic, uh, very intelligent man who was a robot. And I think you know when he told us that secret, I immediately realized. He'd, he'd probably taken on that personality as a way to, you know, buttress that side of him away behind a wall. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. Yeah. So your book, Bloodstains, was published in 2011. Uh, it's essentially about your deep dive into the life of H.H. H. Holmes after finding out that you were a direct descendant um, and finding out everything you could about this evil man that is your ancestor. Uh, the book also explores some of the things that are covered in the show that you did for the History Channel, American Ripper, uh, mainly the possibility that Holmes faked his own death and the theory that he was Jack the Ripper. Um, So I watched every episode of that show. Like, as it aired, we watched it as a family, and we were so enthralled. And then that ending was horrific. Uh, It was so abrupt. It was so unsatisfying. And and I can't imagine how you must have felt with the way that they just kind of shut it all down at the end. They were essentially, no, he wasn't Jack the Ripper, and yes, that was him in the grave. Everybody go away. Goodbye. Um, how, did, how did you feel about that? You know, I'll tell you, but before we go on, let me correct one thing you said. My book is not published. I'm probably the only author in America who was offered a publishing deal and turned it down. Um, the New York outfit demanded that I take the chapter out where I believed Holmes was Jack the Ripper and I refused. So, uh, oh, wow. let's change is self-published. It's done very well. It sold a lot of copies. So yeah, a lot I'm of people still, self-publish these days. I think it's a great way to be able to put out what you want the way you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and you know, it's, uh, it has, it has certain advantages, um, that with Facebook and Twitter now and social media, you can mm-hmm. get, you can, you can, you can, you could make it work. But as far as the ending or, you know, I have a, we have a little watch party on one of the Facebook pages and every Monday we all get together and watch an episode again. And when we, when it first came out, I was so nervous about being 
a co-host on a show like that with millions of people watching. I barely watched every aspect of it. Now it's so much fun. And we have like a little chat party. We go through all the different pieces. But you're right. That ending left me startled. It left me shocked. It left me incredibly disappointed that these scientists, these, these network you know, executives, these people that had history by the horns wanted to run away from it like that. And I still haven't figured out why, ladies, and maybe you can help me. <laughs> it's, it's baffling mm-hmm. to me. Do you believe that he faked his death? Oh, it wasn't him. We, the DNA didn't match. I, it's not him. We, we still argue um, with NBC. NBC News retracted their original statement for me when I threatened them with a lawsuit. So they and, retracted it, but they didn't necessarily go out of their way to correct it either. Well, that's how they do it. They right. they put it on a headline and say, DNA confirms Mudget a match. Holmes mystery, you know, Holmes mystery set aside forever. Well, I called up Lisa Caponini, the boss of NBC Universal, and I said, that's wrong. Have you even seen the DNA results? Well, no, we were taking taking the word for history. And I said, well, as a news agency, perhaps you should see the results. Would you <laughs> like me to send them to you? Right. And she said yes. And then they retracted their headline, but they put it on the fifth page <laughs> of something to where no one saw. Of course, of course they of did. Course. Um, do, you, do you believe still that he's Jack the Ripper? You know, that Jack the Ripper is difficult. That's when and i can only tell you some of this because of contracts i have with history and a and e but and they make you sign 10 feet high of contracts <laughs> i believe it want to <laughs> yeah you can't even i can't even tell the public how i tie my shoes during production <laughs> i and that's not a joke uh. i'm serious I'm serious. And it's sad. It's sad because mm-hmm. TV, instead of wanting to do the facts, the truth, they, they, they want, well, they want to make it sell advertising, which is okay. So anyway, the, the, the theory about Holmes being Jack the Ripper was based on the evidence that we'd put together connecting him with the Catherine Eddowes murder, number three of the Ripper five. Mm-hmm. I've never had any evidence that he killed any of the others. Okay. And I tried to state that for the show and was refused immediately. So for you, the show was really more about um, him not being in that grave, but then they kind of shifted the focus and the, the show itself, at least in the beginning, was more about the Jack the Ripper aspect. Is that... no? No, here, it was a six-part miniseries about Holmes being Jack the Ripper. As it gathered momentum and as they started to enjoy the, way, the direction it was taking, I told them, I said, hey, we can exhume his grave in Pennsylvania and there's a chance we might find the distinct evidence which connects him to London and Jack the Ripper in that grave. But you're right. In the back of my mind, I was also very interested in proving another theory I had about Holmes having escaped his execution. Right. 
Which, I mean, all that we've read and all that we know about him, I, I wouldn't have put anything past <laughs> him. Right. Um, so something else that was left out of American Ripper, um, when the body was exhumed, whoever's body it was, that 150-plus-year-old brain was still rattling around inside the skull, wasn't it? That's probably one of the most interesting aspects, and you're the first show that's actually brought it up uh, like this. So let me let me go back to where it makes sense to your listeners. Okay. When we exhumed him, obviously it was this soupy, filthy, smelly, mm. disgusting mass of human flesh, hair, mustache, and bones, all right? Oh, my. <laughs> Yeah, the smell stayed with me for three months later. Oh, oh my goodness. And uh, really, of the two co-hosts, myself and Amaryllis, who I think is one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met, and we're, we're like best friends now after oh, the show. Oh, that's wonderful. She is, she is an ex-CIA agent that mm-hmm. I, used to call Scull- I used to call Scully during production. And history would, <laughs> the red history hair would, and everything. <laughs> oh, and history would threaten me with lawsuits if I didn't stop because that touched, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the famous X-Files. Show. Yeah, right. Yeah. Can't so, promote another series. Yeah. But I, I still call her Scully. Don't tell them. But I still That's great. Scully. We won't tell anyone. It's, it's we'll just us talking here. <laughs> but she was incredibly courageous brilliant, gorgeous, and just this cool gal you'd go to a bar with and share a beer with. We just had the best of times. And when we were digging him up and the concrete was opened up, the director, who was a brilliant guy that I had issues with, but I think that's pretty common in television shows, to tell you the truth. Um, He's a brilliant guy, and he said, Mudge it, Mudge it. Jump down with the scientists from UPenn and get in there and dig with them. And I said, no, I'm oh not. <laughs> and, and, Amar- and Amaryllis, the, the Scully, says, I'll do it. And she raised her hand. She's jumping down there and with the sign. She's in the dirt within five minutes. And, I remember that. I remember her saying, you need some help and just jumping in there. And mm-hmm. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, yeah. You should have seen the faces on the scientists. They'd spent eight years getting their PhDs. And here's this gal jumping in there. <laughs> and I was just, it was a great scene and I'll never forget it but so we brought the bones all back to the University of Pennsylvania they cleaned them all off and the first time we went into the laboratory to see the skeleton I'd been having Othello moments in my head for months about being there alone, taking the skull in my hand and talking to my evil ancestor. Because at that point, I still believed it was 50-50 him. Okay. And, you know, I thought about Shakespeare and Othello and, you know, the, the looking into his dead eyes and, and asking him, why, old man, why, old man, why were you so evil when you had such brilliance? You could have been anything you wanted to be instead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so I walked in, and he was laid out on this gurney, and I reached over, and I didn't realize, but everyone else was touching him with gloves, and I grabbed him in my hand. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I broke all the rules (laughs) and held the skull in my hand, and I stared into his eyes, okay? 
Well, the scientists come in and they're screaming at me. The, the television network's screaming at me. The director's screaming at me. And I, okay, okay, okay. But I, I see my hand already. And so <laughs> I go to put him down and it moves in my hand. Oh. Yeah. And I say, Dr. Munn, she's the, the head scientist. Incredible. She's been in the, the, the pyramid. She's been inside the Sphinx, all this stuff. And I said, Dr. Munge, um, there's something rattling around in my hand inside the skull. And she said, Jeff, that's ridiculous. It's impossible. What are you talking about? And I said, well, it's moving in my hand. And it just did it again. So she runs over, puts on her surgical gloves, <laughs> and she takes it from me. And it rattles in her hand. And she has this shocked look on her face that they cut from TV. I don't know why. <laughs> so she never quite answered why it moved, except her and the other scientists flipped the skull over. They look inside the two cavities at the back of the skull where the spine enters. And lo and behold, his intact brain is inside the skull. Oh, my. Did they freak out? Yes, they freaked out. <laughs> freaked out. And they still haven't answered my question about why or how it could be. That's crazy to me. Because it, it was 121 years, right? 120-some years after he was buried? Yeah, and there's no other flesh on the bones. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm... it was, uh, it was like, <laughs> I, I rode on an airplane once and a doctor was sitting next to me and he got, he was a fan of the show and we were talking about the ending like we are now. And he said, and I told him about the, and the brain being intact. And he said, well, he could have been a, a cocaine fiend and maybe that chemical preserved the brain. Oh, wow. Interesting. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounded something I could write in a book about. Right. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, when you guys did the sonar of the river and you saw all those possible concrete blocks at the bottom, are there plans to pull those up or has that happened? No, no. The, the I'm so curious what's in those. <laughs> history decided not to go further with that. That's got to be and frustrating. It, well, it's you're dealing with a a federal navigable waterway, so you would have had to have the city, the state, the federal government, the EPA, the Coast Guard, everyone, maybe the president of the United States to have <laughs> signed off on it, and they would have had to have dredged the river which ladies were dealing with Chicago, okay? Oh, my. The secrets they, they have, hide. <laughs> oh, they would have dredged up secrets and chemicals and illegal dumpings, everything mm -hmm. you could have imagined. But I'm still convinced there are coffins in that river that we found. And they're there. It's funny. I was at a party in Chicago, and one of the, uh, the mayor's assistants came up to me and goes, you know, we were watching that show and we wanted to know when you guys are going to dredge up the river and pull those blocks up. I mean, they're right across the office from us. And 
And I said, well, there's no plans to do it. And, and I'm not part of those decisions anyway. I'm just the co-host on the show who, who mm-hmm. says what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> right. And, and they, and I, and I, and I told them, I was told by executives that you guys had put the kibosh on any dredging of the river. And he looked at me ladies and he said, I never said no. Oh my gosh. So I don't know what's going on with that. Mm, how strange. It is. I'm so curious. How many people do you think he killed total? You know, that's a debate that goes on and on now about Holmes. And, you know, pe- different people have written different books about different totals. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know. He's definitely a mass murderer, and it may have been nine, it may have been 13. It wasn't the 27 that he admitted. That was proven wrong later. Right. It could have been the 200 that uh, the author of Devil in the White City believes. So it's he was a man who was brilliant at medicine, at chemistry, at forensics, at crime. He could have, he built a torture chamber with a factory for murder and eliminating evidence of remains. Yes, the murder castle. The murder castle. Mm-hmm. We, we've proven that he used the Chicago River for things. We proved that he used a glass factory for things besides selling glass. Right. For someone to argue they know how many he murdered and is, in my opinion, completely ridiculous. Fair. Yeah, that's fair. I agree. Mm-hmm. I just, it, every time I hear someone say, you know, nine, he's responsible for nine deaths, I feel like there's no, why would you build a murder castle to kill nine people? Like, just take a month <laughs> off work and get it done. He obviously had much more lofty goals than that. Yeah, I agree. And and really, when you does it matter whether we prove it was 31 or 82? Right. I don't right. I don't really think so. I right. don't. I mean, if there's people that want to go off on that tangent, I'm, I, I'm going to watch them do it. <laughs> <laughs> so another question I have, Jeff, do you believe in the Holmes curse? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but it wasn't a curse. It was real life. It was him. It was him. But the New York Times covered it. And they did a great job of it, but they, they couldn't escape. And you know what? You have to give them credit. During the time, there was never anyone doubting that he'd been executed that day right? buried. So that, you know, anything that came to visit those people who had irritated him or frustrated him or just plain angered him during the trial and the, and the incarceration, the arrest, um, it was either his his assistance or it was something supernatural like the New York Times wanted to put out. There. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I believe uh, one of the great articles by the Philadelphia Inquirer during the trial was there was there were witnesses up on the stand and they were talking about Holmes being this and that. And the paper wrote about him calmly making a list of the people's names that were either testifying that uh, were working against him or on the jury that bothered him. And it was just that list. And when I had a, a, a compatriot who used to work closely with me and now doesn't, he went and researched every one of those names on that list. And lo and behold, there are many of the Holmes curse. Oh, wow. 
I, I remember reading that somewhere that during the trial, he would just give a certain look to certain people. Mm-hmm. And then those were the ones that later wound up disappearing or dead under suspicious circumstances. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. I still can't believe a movie has been made about it yet. Well, that's coming, right? I hope so. I hope so. It, it, you know, and uh, we, I'll save save that for later. You you can ask about that later. But <laughs> Hollywood making a movie in Hollywood is such a gamble, and it's such a project now. And there's so much money involved. It's I just stand back. I get contacted all the time about from production outfits and studios about it, and I you know I tell them over and over again. God, this is the most fabulous horrible character in American history. Mm-hmm. I agree 100%. Make, make the movie. There's millions out there dying to see what you guys come up with over this story. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, and they tell me, well, you know, Scorsese and DiCaprio are having troubles with the devil in the white city. And I said, well, but the, their difference is they have a book that, you know, wrote about Holmes and about an architect that had nothing to do with each other. It's, it's not a good movie. Right. And full disclosure, when I read the book, I, I skipped over most of the parts about the, the white city. I focused on the devil for sure. I did too. <laughs> I, did too. But I, have, I have a bias. I have a bias. Yeah. Right. So you've written the book, uh, which is fascinating. Bloodstains is available on Amazon, still in paperback or as an ebook, isn't it? Yeah, you can get it at bloodstainsthebook.com or just Google up my name and bloodstains. We we're um, we're almost sold out. We have to make a decision about whether we're going to do another print run. Oh, wonderful! And, and That's it's great. Uh, it does it's done really well. And um, unfortunately, without the help of History Channel or American Ripper, they they refused to help me with it. So. <sighs> oh my! And so you did yeah. American Ripper, um, it, and it was a really really good show until just like that last. Two minutes. Um, they could have easily episode. brought in a season two. Yes, easily. I think so. Uh, what What's next for you, book wise, show wise? What are you working on? You know, I just did an audition in Hollywood a couple of weeks ago from an outfit that would like to do a true crime uh, uh, series. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, and I'm, um, I'd love to be able to tell you more about it, but I can't. But it, it, it <laughs> understand. It, you, you can you can imagine what it would be like. And yes. what my angle would be to the show. So, um, you know, it's and it's about it will be about all the serial killers and how they connect with Holmes characteristically. And uh, I think it's a fascinating subject. So we'll see how that goes. I don't um, you know, they have to they have to put it together. Then they sell it to the networks for yes. one to buy. Absolutely. That's how it works. And it's a tough project. Tough. It's a tough task. Then we have a couple of producers who are putting together uh, scripts for to make a movie of Bloodstains now. And um, once again, that has to be sold to a studio like a Paramount or any of those outfits. Um, so what the best thing about that happening now is now that DiCaprio and Scorsese look like they're pulling back from the devil in the white city. It's much more, it's much more, it's a much better chance that Bloodstains will be made into a movie because no one wants to compete with those giants. Right. Right. And if they say, no, we're not interested in it, we're going to make a movie about Teddy Roosevelt instead, then someone <laughs> will jump in and make a movie about Holmes. 
So that was my next question. Um, there's been these these rumors for years that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio owns the right to Devil in the White City, which is the book by Eric Larson um, that Martin Scorsese is supposed to direct. Leonardo DiCaprio is supposed to star as H.H. Holmes, um, and it's been in talks for years and years, and it just keeps not happening. You're hearing now that it, it may not happen? You know, the the rumors are that they both, they both decided to make another movie a couple of weeks ago, and that's two or three years. Well, that yeah. is just not exciting, is it? But I would be very excited to see Bloodstains turned into mm-hmm. a book. That would be phenomenal. The studios are starting to realize that Bloodstains gives them a much better chance. It's when you, I, I'm going to assume one of you have, has read Bloodstains? Yes, absolutely. Bloodstains is more about the troubles I went through finding out he was my ancestor. Yes, kind of that, um, I don't want to say coming of age, but kind of very much self-realization. As much as you're researching this fascinating story about H.H. Holmes and all of the different facets there, you're also discovering so much about yourself. Um, And then parts that were really hard for me to read, which probably are not the parts that other people focused on, um, is is when you started having seizures. My oldest son has epilepsy, and so much of what you described was so um, real as far as what happens and and what the experience is like. I can only hope that someday uh, he'll be open and and be willing to talk about that. Um, But health-wise, you are much better. Well, uh, actually, I died twice and was revived in the ambulance. So um, the medicine I have is um, incredibly potent and powerful, but it works for me. So you're still Uh, taking anti-seizure medication at this time? I'd die if I didn't. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, but, you know, when you go back in time, ladies, um, uh, Holmes' first wife, Clara, was epileptic. Yes. His his mother was epileptic. Oh, was she? We don't I didn't know, know that. We don't know if he was or not, but we, you know, what this uh, production outfit was telling me, what they're interested in is that Gacy, Bundy, the Green River Killer, they were all epileptic, and they love how Bloodstains discusses the voices, the visions, the recreations in my head during seizures. And they want to use that in a cinema uh, aspect, much like you remember the movie. The, one of my favorite movies is uh, Nicolas Cage and National Treasure. Yes. And they want to make the movie more like that than just simply go back in time and make an epic with people with old clothes. <laughs> and so that's what they're talking to me about. We'll see what happens. I'm excited about it, it obviously, for obvious reasons, but right. it's it's. I'm as excited about the television series and, and them actually wanting to put a team of investigators together to maybe learn things about these killers that we can prevent in the future. Yeah, that, oh, that's yeah. fascinating, actually. We'd have nothing to talk about. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> There's still the past. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. This I know I'm using the word fascinating way, way too much, but I just can't think of a better better word for it. This is all 
so fascinating to us. This is what we read about, Mm -hmm. what we watch. Um, I I know it sounds very strange to say, you know, my favorite serial killer, but H.H. Holmes is mine because he was (laughs) so, so smart, so charming. He was just truly the wolf in sheep's clothing hiding in plain sight with this murder castle. I mean, you cannot get more evil than the murder castle. Um, And the fact that you've got all of these really exciting projects going around, um, all stemming from the fact that, you know, you found out sitting around a a dinner table that you were related to this man. Like, that's just amazing to me. You know, and I I really um, relish the opportunity to come on shows like yours to, to let people know, while I also am disappointed in the last 15 minutes of American Ripper, I think the previous seven episodes are some of the best television I've oh. ever watched. I think yeah. the re- the recreations, the actor they hired to ha- to play H. H. Holmes, the the sh- the production team and History Channel did a great great job on the show, and you know, like I said, the director was brilliant, and then my co-host, she's on a she's on a new series with Net Netflix right now that's going to just go through the roof. I hear is she. Yeah, it'll be out coming out pretty soon. So, um, what uh, do you know what that is? Okay, no, but I'll put it on my Facebook page when I learn a little more. And then here I'll give you the the other secret about uh, Amaryllis. She married Robert Kennedy the third. I knew that, and they have a child together, right? Uh, I think she's pregnant with it. She had a child from a previous. Yes, yes, and she's they're having a baby together. That's so precious. I saw pictures from their wedding, and she, of course, is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, and that's she's so fun. Barefoot. <laughs> barefoot. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. But, uh, so um, I can't wait to get to meet him one day. That that would be uh, very interesting. She's invited me already, so I'm looking forward to that. So wonderful. Um, but um, like like the, like I was saying that that I'm hoping one day to get a movie studio interested in the story about how Holmes arranged his arrest, how Holmes arranged where the trial would be, how Holmes even arranged the judge that was conducting his trial, how he fired his two lawyers, conducted his own defense, went off to Moya Mensing prison where he knew the prison superintendent and then was physically examined by a doctor that we're, we're sure he knew in Chicago had been involved in other schemes. And then that burial at the Holy Cross Cemetery, having pulled the Catholic Church in, and then that Holmes curse after. I can't see why anyone in Hollywood wouldn't realize that's the greatest courtroom drama and true crime movie ever made, possibly. Yeah, I I agree. And I think now more than ever, uh, true crime is so popular popular it's so it's more mainstream you know i've always been fascinated with the subject and with the macabre and growing up it was you're so weird oh my god why do you want to i don't want to listen to you talk about murder you weirdo um but now the movies and the the shows and the channels and the books it's all kind of really getting gaining in popularity so i can't imagine that people wouldn't be just really into you could make so many different movies. I mean, you could just take one facet. You could make a whole movie about the home curse. You could make a whole movie about, um, you know, what you just said with him arranging the trial and faking his death. Um, every different facet. There's so many with mm-hmm. 
Well, to say nothing of the murder castle in Frankenstein in America. I mean. Yeah, absolutely. The murder <laughs> yeah. castle is my that that so that's what got me. Mm-hmm. I love the, that. Uh, the we the post office put the kibob on us going back down into the basement of the post office. I'd been down there three times before, and then they said no more. <sighs> but you know, I'd gone down there with History Channel before on haunted histories. Yes, and it was. The first time, I, I did not, when I went down those stairs, ladies, I didn't believe in ghosts, the macabre, the paranormal, even God. When I came up an hour later, I believed in all of those. Oh, my goodness. And there's an energy down there, which is um, undebatable. And it's that energy, which, well, I tried to capture it in my book. I mean, it wanted me to murder my best friend who was down there with me. Yes, and that was one of one of the, the the scarier parts of the book to read. And um, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I, I mean, uh, I knew how it ended because you're you're not in prison, so I was fairly certain that that it wasn't going to happen. But it was still just to to be wrestling with feelings like that. That's gotta just be yeah. so so crazy it was so it just seemed like so much thrown at you kind of all all at once with the information you were finding out and your health and then those urges that were kind of trying to overtake you it just seemed like a whole lot going on all at once is this person still your best friend oh yeah he's a he's a um an amazing human being who he won the emmy last year did he yeah, and he won the Emmy for a uh, short-term actor. Um, I was there at the Emmys with him in my tuxedo, and and it was a funny. I, I'll hold you on for a couple minutes more, but he went up to gave, give his acceptance speech, and his son and I, everyone there is very elegant. Uh, the woman that I went with, Kim, had arranged. I, I had known her before, but she went as my date. She was Stanley Kramer's daughter, you know, the famous movie director. Yes. And, you know, a, 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 what's the movie? Um, uh, oh, I, I forget. But the, so he goes up to give his acceptance speech and his oldest son and I stand up just screaming for him. <laughs> and everyone, everyone in the audience was looking at us like we were just so rude. <laughs> So we embarrassed him, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, I've got a question for you both before we go. Yeah, of course. All right. All right. Say, say Tom Cruise Appian Way buys back Bloodstains to make a movie about H.H. Holmes, right? Yes. Not Holmes, but who would you have star H.H. Holmes? Who would we have star? Yeah, but not Tom Cruise. Someone different. No, not Tom Cruise. No. Um... He's got to be handsome. He's got to have those striking blue eyes. You can't CGI those. They got to be real. Oh, gosh. Um, this is such a good question. I want to say Ryan Gosling would be a good one. He's got that That's long face. That might work. That might work. Yeah, he's got that I long don't, face. I don't I feel like, like I could I believe him. Like- I kind of like the guy history picked on American Ripper. Oh, I don't God. Know if he, <laughs> he, was he was so handsome. He was great. I, and I met him a couple of times. He has a great eerie voice, too. Oh, well, yeah. Let's let's pick him. What's his name? 
I don't remember his name. We'll find it. We'll find okay. it and we'll start a campaign because, yes, he was, he, he, you know, you when you've watched as many true crime shows as we have, sometimes the, the recreations are very cheesy and very, you know, the, the actors, yes. it looks like your brother just went and put on a fake mustache and an old hat. But that <laughs> guy, that guy was a great, great H.H. H. Holmes. He, he mm-hmm. was the best Jack the Ripper ever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Those scenes in, in London, Whitechapel, were so good. And, and that's, uh, that's one of the best times in my life, the two weeks we spent there in production. We, uh, they treated me first class. We stayed at great hotels. We ate out every night. And then we had this, I had this assistant that would follow Amaryllis and I around. It was, you know, I had never been in, uh, I had never experienced anything like that. And it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. And then to see the work from those recreations come up later, I, I thought it was a, a real treat. Yeah. So I've got my answer. I think Zach Efron would be really good. Do you think he can do it, though? He's doing I, Bundy. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that oh. can't happen, then. <laughs> oh, yeah, Bundy. Yeah, yeah, he's doing the Bundy movie. I don't think he can be both. See, how are they going to make a movie on Ted Bundy but not the OG? I mean, I think <laughs> I think Leo DiCaprio no. would have been great. He, if yeah. they, he's getting a little old now, though, because Holmes was only 34 when he was supposedly put to death, right? Can I say something you're both probably going to like want to gag over though? Oh no. <laughs> I think DiCaprio would be good playing me in Bloodstick. I oh, agree with you. Agreed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that Nicolas Cage role. Yeah. And and I think that would be better and then and then you got to pick that that you know, when you look at when you go to my Bloodstains Facebook page for any of your listeners, and you look at our cover, that's the actor we're talking about, the guy, he's, his face. Mm-hmm. And, man, he sees right through you, even in person he does. Yes. He really does. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, you know what? I've had a lot of fun today. Yeah. Let, yes, your, so let, your, let your listeners know if they'd like a signed copy of Bloodstains to go ahead and take a look at it because we're almost out. Oh, my gosh. Okay. You guys yeah. heard it from Jeff Mudgett himself. If you want a signed copy of Bloodstains, go to the website and get it ordered before they're gone. Jeff, I cannot... Just let my, just let my manager, Kelly, know you'd like a signed copy. Okay. It, <laughs> costs, it costs just a little more because it has another mailing involved. He has to mail it to me for me to sign it. Right. Okay. So, Understandable. Yeah. Thank you so, so much so for much. joining us we, today. We would love to have you back in the future, too. Yes, absolutely. As these, Especially as, as these projects that you're working on start to come to fruition, that would just be amazing. Wouldn't that be fun? I, yes. I, would, love, I would love to do that. I'm going to do a show with uh, Chad in uh, Detroit in the spring. Okay. In Michigan. Oh. With, um, at the Yacht Club. You are. Lake. This spring you're coming to the Yacht Club? Yeah. Well, I will. We, oh, we we'll will be, be there. there. We will be oh, there. Oh, good, good, good. Good. You guys <laughs> come up on stage and we can have oh, a back and forth. That'd be awesome. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy your Sunday, ladies, and thanks for having me on. You Thank too. You so Thank much. you so much. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you guys so much for making us a part of your day. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at So Dead Podcast. You can also find us online at SoDeadPodcast.com and email us your feedback or story ideas. You can send them to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. 
goodbye forever. Have a nice life.